Please be seated. Thank you, Clark and Mandy, for leading us in worship, rest of the worship team, and it's good to worship with you and to now uh, take a look at where we find our hope. We find our hope in God. Everything is found in Him. We just sang about that. Uh, our authority is God's Word, and we're looking at the book of Acts, and I love this 28-chapter book. Maybe you do, too, as we've gone through it. The last couple of weeks, a couple weeks ago, as we looked at chapter 15, we discovered how a person can be made right with God or, or saved. And it, we found out that it's, it's simply by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then last week in chapter 16, we saw a wide assortment of people putting their faith in Jesus. We, we have to go wherever the text takes us. We can't make things up. And so now we're in chapter 17, and the theme today is how do we share our faith with others? How do we vocally talk about Jesus with others? Hmm. I, uh, some of you in this room, I, I know, are still on a journey toward God. Um, you're still wondering, how does Jesus fit into my life? How does God fit into my life? What is this thing about putting my faith in Jesus? And I would just encourage you along that journey and say, that's okay. Take your time. Investigate. Investigate the objective claims of Jesus. Then make a decision. Many of us in this room have made that decision. We've stepped over the line of faith. We've put our trust in Christ, and we are Christians. And you, you, you can't be a Christian for very long until you realize that we as Christ's Christians are to follow Jesus. That is, we are to let Jesus live our lives as if he were us. And we are to pay attention to what he tells us to do. And so back to the idea of telling others about Christ, as we go through the book of Acts, really the springboard for all of the book of Acts, it comes from this verse, which we've read a number of times in this series. Jesus, in his very last words, says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, that is, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, nearby and far away. I've been a pastor for a lot of years, and you would think I'm comfortable with telling people about Jesus, but I find myself tongue-tied at times. I find it difficult. I feel stressed at times, and maybe you do as well. I mean, how, how, how do you talk with somebody who is just absolutely turned off to the idea of God? Irrelevant. How do you talk to somebody who is an intellectual and resists, rejects the claims of Christ? How do you talk to somebody who's religious but does not have a real grasp of true Christianity? How do you talk to somebody who, and you can fill in the blank. Fortunately, we have a great example in chapter uh, 17. It's the Apostle Paul. When Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he said, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Here we get to see the example of Paul. And this is a fabulous story. And what I would like to do as he's visiting the city of Athens is just read it through the whole story and make some observations as we go and then go back and identify some principles we can draw out of this story. All right? So here we go. This is chapter 17, starting at verse 16. <laughs> While Paul was waiting for them in Athens. Who's the them? He makes his way down the coast of Greece, and he leaves Silas and Timothy, his traveling companions, in the previous city. So now Paul arrives in Athens by himself. 
Athens back then is the way, was the way it is today. It was a tourist destination. Who wouldn't want to visit beautiful Athens right on the sea? A gorgeous city with gorgeous architecture. It was the school of thought for so many philosophies. Did you know this is where Socrates and Plato hung out? Eventually Aristotle himself. So Paul must have been thrilled to be there, as anybody would have been. And while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, for waiting for Timothy and Silas, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in this city. Let me emphasize the word everywhere. Some say that there were more idols and shrines and altars in, in this Athens than there were in the rest of the country. By idol, I mean, or shrine, I mean something made out of silver or gold or bronze or stone or ivory that was dedicated to a god or a goddess. I mean, Athens is where the pantheon was, the, the, the supreme gods and goddesses of their world, Zeus being at the top. But around the country, there are many, many, many other idols. And what we read is this distressed he was deeply disturbed from the gut. He was, he was upset about this. Why? Why would he be upset? What is an idol? An idol at its core is anything that replaces God's rightful place in our lives. God has created us for himself, but we find ways to to substitute that with idols, and that's what they had done. And so he was deeply distressed by all of these idols that he saw throughout Athens. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. As Paul's custom was, he would, when he visited a city, he would find the Jewish synagogue. He was Jewish, and so he would go there, and he would pull out the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament, and reason from them about Christ. And then when he was done in the synagogue, we read that he went to the marketplace, the public square. In the Greek, it's the word agora. Maybe you've heard that before. And he would hang out there with the common person and talk with them about the gospel of Jesus, being a witness for Christ. But there was a third setting as well. He also had a debate with some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. These were the really smart guys in the community. I mean, Athens was the center of intelligentsia, and these were at the top. The Epicurean philosophers, their school of thought was, let's party, you only go around once in life. Let's pursue happiness and pleasure. These were the fun guys. But then there was the Stoic philosophers, and their school of thought said, you know, let's be about pursuing our duty in life, and let's suppress happiness and pleasure. And they were more fatalistic. So if you were throwing a party, you would invite the Epicureans, not the Stoics. All right? When he told the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers about Jesus and his resurrection, they said, what's this babbler trying to say with these strange ideas he's picked up? Others said he seems to be preaching about some foreign gods. Now we'll go back and take a look at the word babbler there, and literally it means a pea picker. That's the term they used. What they meant was it seemed like Paul talking about this Jesus and this resurrection, which they had never heard about before, was picking from different philosophies and religions from around the world and weaving them together into this new idea that they had never heard about before. And they were intrigued by this new idea. 
Then they took him, Paul, to the high council of the city, or it's called the Areopagus. Come and tell us about this new teaching, they said. You are saying some rather strange things, and we want to know what it's all about. It should be explained that all the Athenians, as well as the foreigners in Athens, seem to spend all their time discussing the latest ideas. The Areopagus, it, it, it means the hill of Ares. It's, it's, from the Greek, it's where we get from the Greek Mars Hill. Maybe you've heard that before. So here, here he is. Here's Paul at Areopagus, at the Mars Hill. This is where all of the smart people hang out and discuss the latest ideas of, in the world. And Paul, being a, a giant intellect himself, must have been intimidated entering into this setting where all of these, these, these men of, of tremendous intellect were hanging out. People who, who knew what they believed and were critics of anything new. So here's Paul in this famed Areopagus. Don't you wonder what his first words will be? Here we go. So Paul, standing before the council, addressed them as follows. Men of Athens, I notice that you are very religious in every way. For as I was walking along, I saw your many shrines or altars or idols. And one of your altars had this inscription on it, To an unknown God. This God whom you worship without knowing is the one I'm telling you about. If, if, if we were to go back to Acts chapter 13 during Paul's first missionary journey. Here he's in his second missionary journey. He visited a place called Pisidian Antioch. And when he visited the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch, he opened up the scriptures and he reasoned with the Jewish people there about Christ. Why did he do that? Because they were Jewish. He connected with them through the Jewish scriptures. But now he's at the Areopagus and Judaism is off the table. There's no way to connect with them from the Jewish scriptures. And so Paul has to find a new way to build a bridge, to connect with these people. And so he arrives in Athens. As he's walking around and observing, he notices an altar. Actually, there was more than one like this, called to an unknown God. And Paul says, what I would like to do is fill in the gap for you and tell you about the God that is unknown to you. And so now he rolls up his sleeves and he gets to work and he gives a message. Now John Stott, in his commentary on the book of Acts, says this message of Paul can be broken down into five categories. And in these five categories, Paul explains the gospel of Jesus and he refutes or he um, exposes the, the, the darkness and the futility and the illogic of idolatry. So this is the first category Stott gives us. God is the creator of the universe. This is Paul, the start of Paul's message. He is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in man-made temples. In other words, how silly to think that everything you see in the universe, from this earth up to the stars, uh, is made by somebody who can fit into one of your shrines. He builds on that. God is the sustainer of life, and human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath to everything, and he satisfies every need. What is Paul saying? Your life is given to you. Your life is sustained by the one who made you. And how, how absurd to think that he can fit into one of your tiny little shrines, altars, idols. 
God is the, the ruler of all nations. From one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. His purpose was for the nations to seek after God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, though he is not far from any of us, for in him we live and move and exist. For from one man, he created all the nations. That's He's talking about Adam. And all the nations, he means all the people groups of the world, all of the, all of the ethno-linguistic groups of the world. God made every one of them, including you people here in Greece. The people in Greece thought they were the favored nation in the world. Paul says, no, that's not true. We are all created equal. We are all created by God. And he has given you breath and life to know him and to seek him. And in an effort to connect with his audience here at Mars Hill, Verse 28, he says, For in him we live and move and exist. That's an exact quote from a 6th century B.C. Cretan poet. <laughs> in other words, you have life right now. You can move right now. And you're not dead yet. You have an opportunity to draw close to God. <clears throat> and he goes on. God is the father of all human beings. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. We are his offspring is a quote of a third century Stoic author. Again, Paul connecting with his audience. And since this is true, we shouldn't think of God as an idol designed by craftsmen from gold or silver or stone. How ludicrous to think that, that these, these little idols of ivory, stone, gold, and silver, and bronze could have offspring. No, you came from the one who has created you for himself. And then lastly, God is the judge of the world. And this is the end of Paul's speech. God overlooked people's ignorance about these things in earlier times, but now he commands everyone everywhere to repent of their sins and turn to him, for he has set a day for judging the world with justice by the man he has appointed, and he proved to everyone who this is by raising him from the dead. What's Paul saying? that there is going to be a time of judgment, and it will be universal. And there will be a time of judgment, and it will be absolutely just and fair. And Paul doesn't tell us when that judgment day will be, but he tells us who the judge will be. It will be the one who has been raised from the dead. Now, we have what Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has given us. Paul said more than what's recorded here. For instance, we, we don't read here about the cross of Christ, but there's no way Paul would have talked about, uh, about uh, resurrection, which he does, without talking about the cross of Christ. Paul doesn't talk openly about faith in Christ, but there's no way that he would have talked about repentance, which he does, without talking about faith in Christ. So now Paul has given them the gospel of Jesus based upon this audience and what they need to hear. That's the end of the message. Luke wraps it up with his final words by saying, When they heard Paul speak about the resurrection of the dead, some laughed in contempt, but others said, We want to hear more about this later. That ended Paul's discussion with them, but some joined him and became believers. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the council, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. There, there were some who just laughed. Have you been there? There were some who, who, who wanted to know a little bit more, kind of undecided, and there were some who became followers. And that's the end of Acts chapter 17. Now, some principles we can draw out of this 
for our own lives as witnesses for Christ. Again, we're, we're, we must go where Scripture takes us. We're talking about telling others about Jesus. This may be new to some of you. That's okay. We're all on a journey. But I want to give you some principles for how to be a witness for Christ that come out of this. Years ago, I heard a little quote. Methods are many. Principles are few. Methods often change. Principles never do. What are some principles we can learn from this passage? There are probably some more, but let me just give you these. Principle number one, recognize your inside track. I love that term, inside track. Here's Paul at the, at, the, at the synagogue, and then he's in the marketplace, and then he's in the Areopagus, and Paul had a sense, and you read this throughout his letters, he had a sense that God put him there for a purpose. And do you know God has put you wherever you are for a purpose? You have an inside track. Um, today, when, when you go home to family or, or neighbors, there may be some there who are still far from God and some who are seeking God. <laughs> Tomorrow, when you go to work or you go to the gym or you go to your school to get ready for the new year or you join your team or you meet with other coaches, whoever it might be, these are the God-given moments that he's given each of us. Years ago, I and I've told this story so many times, maybe you could tell it for me, but I was, I was sitting in a, with, a, with a group of other pastors listening to a man named Bill Hall uh, uh, give a presentation about church leadership. And he asked the question, when is the church most effective? And, and he answered his own question. The church, the church is most effective when the lights are off, the chairs are empty, and the cars are gone. It's when we are strategically, sovereignly distributed by God out into the community where we each have our own inside tracks. And Paul knew his inside track at the synagogue, in the marketplace, or at the Areopagus. And it's there that he rubs shoulders with people who are religious and people who are irreligious. And we have those inside tracks where we can also rub shoulders with those who are religious or irreligious representing Christ. So, Paul had his inside track. I have my inside track. You have your inside track. What now? Here we go. See what God sees. I think I've shown this to you before over the years. There's a fish in the Amazon River called an anablep. That's the genus name. It's called an anablep because it has four eyes. There it is. It has four eyes. It has, two, it has a set of eyes that look up, looks up to navigate, and it has a set of eyes to look down for food. Interesting. Why do I tell you this? We won't leave it up there very long because it's kind of ugly. I, in this story of Paul, what we, what we get a vision of is how to be an anablep Christian. What do I mean by that? Here's Paul in Athens. All of the beauty all of the architecture, and he sees it with his eyes, and yet with another set of eyes, he is able to look beyond that to a city and a people who are submerged by idols. What is an idol? Anything that replaces or supplants God in our lives. Now, we live in the West, and so we don't have idols of ivory and silver and gold. But we've got our We've got our things that replace God. We've got those, you know, uh, those uh, approved idols, you know, of possessions and, and privilege and power and status and beauty and 
you know, all of those. But what do all of those do? We can lean on those instead of God. And then there are even those, those applauded idols that can take the place of God, which could be family. It could be a relationship. It could be our children. God has a rightful place in each of our lives. I want to ask you, when you look at somebody, what do you see? Can you be an anablep Christian and see them physically? You see their beauty. You see what's on the outside. You see how their lives may be all together, whatever. But can you look deeper within and see the the vacuum that's there that can only be filled by God? The author of Ecclesiastes writes that God has set eternity in the hearts of men and women. He's wired each one of us to know him. Can you look at people in that way, be an anablep Christian? And when you've done that, how do you approach having a conversation with somebody about Jesus? Principle number three, walk in their world first. I was with a group of friends recently, and I I don't know, I, I don't presume to know where they are with God, but I would imagine some of them just don't care. Don't think about Jesus. Some of them are very intellectual, but just would resist the message of Christ. How do I I get an opportunity to talk about my faith? And this is the principle, walk in their world first. When our our daughter was uh, very little, she had a game called Pretty Pretty Princess. And I would sit on the floor and we would spin the dial and whatever piece of jewelry it landed on, you'd have to put on that piece of jewelry. I loved winning because I'd be decked out in earrings, a tiara, and a bracelet, and all of that. Why did I do that? Not because I like looking like a princess. Parents, don't we all know that if, if, if you want your kids to one day appreciate your world, appreciate your beliefs and your values, you have to walk in their world first. It's, it's, the, it's the cardinal rule of relationships. It's the, it's the principle of reciprocity. Interest begets interest. You want somebody to be interested in your world, you've got to be interested in theirs. We had a neighbor one time. His name was Ed. He was a crusty older man and just uh, wasn't really very nice, but I thought, I'm going to try to get close to him. And I found out he loves race cars. So I went and looked up race cars because I don't know anything about race cars. So I started talking about NASCAR. He goes, no, not NASCAR, F1 racing. Oh, man, back to the drawing board. So I, had to, I tried to learn about F1 racing. I didn't know anything, but it was my way to try to understand his world a little bit more, to build a bridge. I, I think in Christianity there's a, there's a tendency to go to one of two extremes. One is to be a porcupine, and that is I'm not going to hang out with people who don't know Jesus. I'm not going to hang out with people who don't go to church. And if you're like that, you lose any salt and light. But the other extreme is to be a chameleon. And that is where you compromise your values. And you just are like everybody else. And that's not what Paul did. He was in the middle of the Areopagus, appreciating and accepting them. And by that, I mean not agreeing with them, not compromising what he believed, but he was valuing what they believed. He connected with them. He quoted their, their poets and their authors. And I see you're very religious people, he said. He found ways to affirm them, to walk in their world. And then he had an opportunity 
to talk about his faith. Interest begets interest, doesn't it? Now, once you've walked in somebody's world, you have an opportunity to talk about your faith. What do you say? Let's take a look at what Paul did. He talked about the good news of Jesus. Um, Again, not everything that he said is recorded in the book of Acts. Did you know that you you could summarize the entire story of the Bible in four words? Have you ever done that? It is a neat way to do it. One time I was walking down the road with a guy and said, hey, can I, can I just summarize the entire message of the Bible with you in four words? And here it is. And I think this is the outline that Paul followed. It's just God, us, Christ, you. And this is what our, our, our friends, those who may still be apart from God, need to know that God loves you. God cares about you. He created you for himself. The us part is we have all We have all walked away from God. We have all sinned. We've all messed up. And that's why we we sense this worship of an unknown God. We just don't know who it is. But, But God, in his great love for us, for God so loved the world that he sent his son Jesus for us. God has done for us through Christ what we could never do for ourselves. This is the gospel. He's given us the gift of connecting back with him. And now the you part, it's not enough for you to just intellectually say, that's great. Or to emotionally say, oh, that's so nice. The you part is you each, I, we each need to put our faith in Jesus to connect with God. And that's all Paul did as he shared this story. And that's all we are called to do. Now, now Paul was talking to a group of people who didn't know anything about the Bible, about the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. Didn't know anything, so he started from the very beginning. But somebody you're talking with may need to start somewhere else. And this is where we pay attention to our audience, the people we're talking to. What do they need to hear? Based upon the questions I've asked and the things I've learned about this person. And it could be that the very thing you need to do is just to tell your personal story of faith in Christ, how you came to know Jesus, and to weave that with God, us, Christ, you. That's it. That's what Paul did. That's all he did. And then the last principle is simply this. Leave the results up to God. Paul understood something very important. That we are in a partnership with God. We are called to be his spokesperson. Jesus said, you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere. That's, that's, what, you are to, that's what the church is to do. That's what Christ's followers, that's what we are to do. <clears throat> but it is God who brings people to himself. We are in a partnership with God. And it's God's spirit that finally wins somebody to himself. Um, it's, it's wrong. It's always wrong to, to define or to measure the results of ministry or witnessing in terms of results. It's always wrong to measure ministry, witnessing, in terms of results. It's always right to measure it in terms of faithfulness. And Paul was faithful. And that's all Jesus is calling us to be as his followers, faithful witnesses, as we talk about him everywhere. Which is why we pray. Which is why we pray.
Now, there's no, there's no evidence in this story we just read that Paul prayed. Of course, we don't know everything that happened there. We aren't told that. But I know he prayed. When Paul, when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he says, I came to you in, in, with fear and trembling. Have you, have you ever, have you ever tried to, to talk with somebody and just felt fear and trembling. I told you earlier, I've been a pastor for a lot of years, and I still feel that. When it comes time to talk about Jesus with somebody who may seem resistant or, or maybe a skeptic, I still feel that. And maybe you do too. Fear and trembling, he felt. I, I can only imagine the trepidation he felt as he approached the Areopagus. And the reason I, I know he had to have prayed, because he shares a couple of times as he's writing from prison to the Ephesians and to the Colossians, at the end of both letters, he writes these words. I'll just show you the ones to the Ephesians. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. What's Paul saying? I, I'm scared. I'm trembling. I, I, just pray for me that I, that I would be bold. And then pray also that I, would, that I would use the right words for this particular person or this particular group. And once I've been bold and have used the right words, pray that God would do work in that person and draw him or her to the Lord. Again, it is God who does that. We are simply the mouthpieces. We are partners with God. And with that, I would like to pray for us. Let's pray together. Lord, first of all, I want to pray on behalf of friends here in this room who may be still feeling apart from you. But in their hearts, they want to know you. Your word says, whoever seeks me will find me. And I pray that they would find you. I pray they would pray this prayer. <laughs> God, if you're real, show yourself to me. Please do that, God. And then, God, for those in this room who have stepped over the line of faith and we are Christ followers, we are Christians, we want to follow you the whole way, which means speaking up for you, talking about you everywhere. Give us wisdom. Give us strength to do that. Give us the boldness to do that, mixed with, mixed with wisdom and love. And then, God, give us the right words. And then, Lord, do your work in the human heart. Many of us in this room have somebody in mind, a son, a daughter, a brother, a sister, a parent, a loved one, a neighbor, a coworker, a teammate, a classmate. Lord, would you please draw that person to yourself? but help us to be spokespersons for Christ, to say a good word for Jesus. Thank you. Help us to be your church outside these walls as we go. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen. Good to worship with you. Acts 18 next week.